Yes, God. We praise your name tonight. We thank you that you are here. We feel your spirit. We feel your presence. And we know that you are near to us, God. Thank you for being present. I pray one more time, Lord, before I begin to speak. Would you give me the words to say, to, to do justice to your word? I can never explore it fully, but I pray you give me the wisdom and insight to explore this text and help us to drink deeply from it. It is your word, and we long to hear your voice tonight. So speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't been here, we're going through the book of Genesis. So we've been in it since, uh, basically since February, I think. We've been in it for a while, and uh, we're in it till Christmas. So that's how I've got it planned out. Um, We're about halfway through it at this point. And so we've been following Abraham these last three, almost three months. And here we are at the end. The end of Abraham's life. So this is a long section. It goes from chapter 24, verse 1, all the way through 25, 11. So this will be the last account. Chapter 24 is the longest account in Genesis. It's, it's very full. It's this story of a bride for Isaac. But what's also interesting, it's the last act of Abraham. The last thing he does is provide a wife for his son. Now, if you remember, when, in the, the previous few weeks, we've been talking about this promise that finally came to pass. His whole life, he's been waiting for this son of promise since he came to the land of Canaan, all the way back in chapter 12. Chapter 12, he was told, go from your country, go from your father's house, your clan, and go to the land of which I will show you. And he did. The man of faith, he went and he entered this land and lived there as a nomad, and and walked the breadth of it. And so he's been waiting for this promise, this promised child, and then Isaac's born, and then of course the high point, maybe even the high point of the whole Old Testament in some ways, and what it alludes to, which uh, the Jews call the Akedah, the binding. We often refer to it as the sacrifice of Isaac. It's not the sacrifice. He's not sacrificed. It's called the binding, the binding of Isaac. So that event of course, is so significant. And what's it tell us? It tells us the New Testament. It's the essence of the New Covenant. The Father sacrificing His Son. That's the story. And the Son willing to be sacrificed. That's something that's often missed. Isaac willingly gets on the altar. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly, but 13-year-old boys can probably beat up 100-year-old men. We recognize that. Isaac is a willing sacrifice. He lets himself be bound, gets on the altar, has the wood put on him. He's a willing sacrifice. That's significant. We see the same thing in the New Testament. The <coughs> lamb who was silent before its shearers, right? Jesus is, is Isaac in that story. Okay. And then we got to 23, the death of Sarah. Last chapter, Sarah died, and it was so important to Abraham to honor his wife that he bought a piece of land, the cave at Machalah. In, in the land of Hebron, right? This is the southern part of Israel. And he bought this land. And what's significant about that? The promises are coming true. What was Abraham promised? The land. It's the first time he's owned a piece of the promise. He owns a piece of the promise. The land, it's his. It's been deeded to him. He bought it. It's now his. But now there's one thing left, right? This promise of the seed, this promised boy, Isaac. How does the line continue? 
if Isaac is not wed? How can it go forward? That quintessential problem is what we follow through the story of Genesis. How can the genealogy go forward? How can the line of promise continue? We were worried because Sarah was barren, but God provided. Now we're worried because Isaac is single. He's a bachelor. He has, he has no one with which to continue the line of promise. So Abraham is going to rectify that. Okay? So like I said, this week's called The Last Act of Abraham. This is Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. The promise coming true, the blessing. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. But you will go to my country and my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Okay, Abraham. Now it's never said, but he's old and advanced in age. That is typical terminology you see in other parts. You see it in 1 Kings of someone about to die. It's a deathbed speech. Abraham's at the end. And so he takes an oath. And what's significant, it's funny to me, because I've heard heard this passage preached before, and people really don't know what to do with the thigh covenant. They think it's pretty weird, which is fair, which is a fair thing. It, It seems kind of weird. But we talked about this when we talked about the covenant of circumcision, too. It's particularly apt that the loins are the seat of the seed, right? I think we all understand how that works. It makes sense. This thigh covenant is related to a promise about the seed. You're making an oath with me near the spot of the seed in which you're going to continue my line, right? That makes sense. Now, it seems foreign and strange to us. It's not like our customs, but it makes sense when you think about it just like the covenant of circumcision being about the seed. I'm giving you a promise you're going to have descendants. So what's the sign? Well, you cut the foreskin off the male member. Like It, it makes sense when you think about the sign. It's about a promise. So he has this oath under the thigh. And, and he swears that he's going to get a wife. Now, what's interesting, Abraham clearly trusts this servant with everything. He's in charge of everything, and he must be a faithful servant because Abraham's willing to leave everything in his care. And especially if this is a deathbed speech. He doesn't know the outcome, so he puts the person he trusts most in charge of it. So he asks him, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go get you a wife from your your, uh, country, from your your clan is the terminology that's used. A clan is an intermediate size size, uh, portion of people. It's not a tribe, it's not vast, it's like a homeland, like a territory. It's, it's also not the extended family. They use my father's house, which means your extended family. He's talking about the clan. He needs to have a, a wife from his clan, from his country. So, the obvious question is, well, what if this woman doesn't want to come? What, is this, what if this woman doesn't want to come? You know, you, may, you obviously are concerned with the promise and, and providing a wife, for your son, what if she decides that you know this is 
She's just not going to do it. Abraham is specific and he is concerned about this reality. What is the, what's the concern? It's that Isaac will leave the promised land. He does not want his son to leave. Abraham said to him, that is the servant, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife from my, for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing, then you will be free from my oath. Only do not take my son back there. Isaac must remain in the land of promise. Abraham trusts that God will work it out. He wants a wife from his homeland, but he trusts that he will work it out. But do not leave the land of promise. Stay here. Don't bring my boy back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So the servant sets out. He takes ten camels from the camels of his master and sets out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. Now Nahor, if you remember from early on in Genesis, that's Abraham's brother. That's his brother's house. Okay. And what's this deal? Why is he taking all this stuff? He's preparing a bride price. He's preparing gifts to give to the family of this bride, right? So he's not going empty-handed. He's going that this is going to be a success. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to fulfill my oath. So he made the camels kneel down outside the city. The journey's just breezed over. He's already there. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, here's his prayer, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink. And who answers, drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to, your, to my master. Now loving kindness is an interesting word. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. Now you may have heard that word before. It's kind of a, one of those words that made it into English lexicon, hesed. It's, it's loving kindness is usually how we translate it. Sometimes faithful love, steadfast love. It's covenant faithfulness. The point is this, that God is in covenant with Abraham and he wants, he's asking, stay true to the covenant. Be faithful to the covenant you've made with your servant Abraham. That's what he's asking. But we usually translate it in this way, loving kindness. It's, it's that the love, it's almost like the marriage love, right? The love of covenant. You've covenanted to one another. You are in deep, intimate relationship. So show that loving kindness to my master. Okay, he's waiting, and he said, okay, here's, here's the test, Lord. Here's what I have. If this thing happens, I'm going to know it's you. I'm going to know it's of you. Okay, what happens? Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milchah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. Now, the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. 
Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now the story leaves you in suspense because she's offered a drink. And they stop you there before she says anything about the camels. Right? That's the drama of the, of the narrative. Oh, is this the one? Well, she's letting him drink. What about the camels, though? We're waiting on the camels. Okay, she could be the one. She's coming out. She's watering. And, and, and we get something that the servant didn't know, right? What do we know? Well, we know she's the son of Bethuel. What? God's answering the promise this great? This is not just from Abraham's clan. This is from his family. This is from his father's house. Now, the servant doesn't know that, but we do. We've been let in on the secret. This Rebecca is a close relative of the family. So now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Interesting. There's actually a difference between what he had prayed for and what Rebecca offers. He said, the one who says, I will water your camels also. That's going to be the one you've appointed. What does she say? I will, I will draw water for them until they stop being thirsty. I'm going to satiate them. What's significant about that? This woman is going to join the family of hospitality. Abraham is the man of hospitality. That's what he's known for. Look at Genesis 18 when he invites the Lord and the two angels into his home and prepares a feast. He says, let me get some bread and water. And then he prepares a feast for them because he's a host. Rebecca is of the same spirit. It's not just a little water for your camels. I'm going to satiate them. I will make them full. She's offering more than is even expected because that's who she is. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and she ran back to the well to draw and she drew for all his camels. And now think about that. It's like I said, it's not a little water. These are 10 camels that probably took a long time to, to let all of them drink to full. <laughs> camels, if you know, they store water. They're prolific drinkers. This is a woman of generosity. How many times do you think she had to go back to, to do this? I mean, countless, right? This is a woman of generosity. And so what does the, he think? What's the servant think? He says, he was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. I think it's pretty apparent he did. But I, I resonate with him, right? Don't we all do that? Like, oh, it seems pretty clear, but I probably should just check one more time. I don't know if this was really God. But it was really God. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold. By the way, that's like three years wages. Ten shekels. That's for an ordinary laborer. That's like three years worth of wages. These are not cheap gifts. They're very expensive. And he said to her, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? He's about to be let in on what we already know. She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcha, whom, he, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. And the man immediately bowed low and worshipped. He knew. He knew. 
this was the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. We miss that. Most of us English readers, we miss that. This is, this is promise fulfilling in a way we can't even comprehend. This is not just from the clan. This is not just from the city. This is his family, his father's house. The Lord directed him exactly to the woman who's of the house of his brothers. Now, why does it say brothers? She's actually related to both of Abraham's brothers, right? If Milcha, if you remember, is actually the daughter of Haran, Abraham's dead brother, and she married Nahor, Abraham's other brother. And so this is a close family member. This is bringing the family back together. So the girl ran and she told her mother's household about these things. She can't believe, so she just runs back to the home, probably to make sure that it's okay, was one thing, make sure it's okay for this man and, and his entourage to come back to the house. Uh, and she's checking in. And what happens? Uh, we're getting introduced some, to some significant characters in Genesis, some significant actors, if you will, the, the players on the stage at this point. Because Rebecca had a brother, and his name was Laban. Now Laban's going to come up again, isn't he, in the story of Jacob. But Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. And when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house, then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to them, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. This is a generous family. We're going to learn some other stuff about Laban later on, but at this moment, he looks pretty good. He's a hospitable man. At least it appears that way. We do know that he noticed the gold rings real quick. Maybe that's telling. Maybe that's foreshadowing for us, perhaps. But, but this is a generous family. Look at Abraham's family. They are people of hospitality, people who are hosts. So when food was set before him to eat this, before the servant... He said, I will not eat until I have told my business. This is a faithful servant. This is a faithful servant. He will not rest until the business of Abraham is dealt with. Now, I think part of the reason, part of the reason is he, he wants to get home to his master, who at this point is probably dying. I do think that's part of it, and we miss it. I'll tell you why, when we get to the end of the story, why I think <coughs> Abraham's dying. But here, he just seems to be in a hurry, almost. So Laban said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. <clears throat> now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. Now, I am not saying this is conniving, but the servant is a good salesman. He's making points 
to try and convince this family that this is the right move. That this is what's happening. Now, he's saving the big piece for last, right? He's saving it. Hey, by the way, you should hear my prayer that I prayed and what happened. But here, he's already starting to prime the pump with them. Listen, don't you know how blessed my master is? Listen to all the stuff he has. What's significant, too, and and really kind of tragic in, in another way is that if this is a death account, it is almost a eulogy. Look at the life of Abraham. The Lord has blessed him in every way. At the end of his life, look at what he had. Look at what he has done. Look at who he is. And he waited for this child. Now, Sarah bore a son to him in her old age. What's significant about that? Uh, They need to know who this Isaac is. He's starting to sell Isaac. One thing that's significant is if you look at the family lineage, Rebecca and Isaac are not in the same place on the family tree. They're actually a generation separated because she is the granddaughter on one side of Abraham's brother and then the other side, the daughter, I suppose, because it's the other brother, or granddaughter, sorry, granddaughter and great-granddaughter. But Isaac is the son, right? There's a, di- there's a difference there. So she want, uh, the servant wants to make a point to say, hey, it was in her old age that she was born, that this child was born. So Rebecca, this, this is not some old, old man trying to weasel his way in here. This is a, a young man that you would be betrothed to, right? He's, he's selling this, this marriage. So my master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful and you will take a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. He's relating the story of what happened. He's relating the providence of God in leading him here. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring, and may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she will say to me, you drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank. And she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcha bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now he's revealed the big thing, right? The Lord providentially brought me here. Can you not see that this was meant to be? This is what the Lord had intended. Now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know. 
that I may turn to the right hand or the left. Let me go find another woman. If you are not for this. What's interesting is these words, remember kindly and truly. He said that the Lord had dealt kindly and truly in kindness and truth with Abraham. He's telling them, do you want to be like God? Do this. Do this. Those words, kindly and truly, the Hebrew words hesed, that's behind kindness, and emet, which is truth, behind truly. It's the same words he said. The Lord has been kind and, and faithful, is how it's translated in the other part. The Lord has been kind and faithful to my master. Now, do you want to be kind and faithful too? He's imploring them to be like God, to live up to the character of God. Don't you see that God's hand is at work? Don't you want to be like him? Assent to this. Agree to this. This marriage is from God. He's at work. So Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord. So we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. God's fulfilling the promise. He's fulfilling the promise. So when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. All the... the salesmanship, all the, the uh, charmingness is kind of gone now, it seems like. He's like, I've got to go. It's time to go. I've got to go. He's urgent. He has a sense of urgency. It's time to send me away. But her brother and her mother, now, interesting, they'd all assented to agree to this, but all of a sudden, they, maybe they're a little hesitant. Let the girl stay with us a few days. Say ten. Afterwards, she may go. And the servant said to them, don't delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Who's his master? Abraham. Abraham. I mentioned that because we're going to see something different here in just a second. And they said, fine, we'll, we'll call the girl and consult her. Let's see what she thinks. So they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. What is missed about Rebecca in this story, one of the few stories we have to see who she is, this story makes specific that she's the right choice for Abraham's family because she's like Abraham. What's she doing by saying, I will go? Leaving her father's house and her land for a new country, for a new place. What did we see about her earlier? She's... She is hospitable and generous, just like Abraham. She is going to fulfill the role of Abraham and Sarah. She is going to be the one to continue that line. And we've seen it in her character, that she is the right fit. She's generous and kind, and she's willing to, to follow the promise, to walk in the way, to go when it takes faith. Not when it's assured, not when it makes sense, not when it's easy to go, 
but to leave her family and everything she knows for a spontaneous, random moment of God. What did she think when she left this morning? I'm going to the well to get some water. Her whole life has changed in an instant. But she was willing to follow the voice of the Lord. She heard it. She heard the promise. She followed, just like Abraham. So, they sent her away their sister, Rebecca, and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands. And may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. They are blessing her as she goes, and that blessing's going to come true because she's inheriting the promise of Abraham. The promise that her descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach. She is receiving that promise. That blessing will come to pass. So Rebecca arose with her maids and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. So they're, they're on the return journey. They're heading home. And when they get here, I'm going to explain to you why I think Abraham is dead. Listen to the words. Listen to the words of the last part. It's never said explicitly. But I'm going to tell you why I think Abraham is dead. Now Isaac had come from going to Bir Lachai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. What's unique about Isaac being at Bir Lachai Roy? What's Bir Lachai Roy? That's Hagar's well. The well of the living one who sees me. Why is Isaac there? That's strange. We don't have an answer for that yet, at least. Why would he be there? It's, this well is, only, in Genesis so far, it's only been associated with Hagar and Ishmael. So why is Isaac there? That's a, a mystery. We'll come back to it. So Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Who's the servant's master? Well, it was Abraham. Who does he claim is his master? Yitzhak, the laughing one. It's significant that Abraham doesn't appear in the account again. Why would the master not return, or why would the servant not return to Abraham to tell him of the completion of his journey? Most obvious conclusion, especially from the wording of he is my master, Isaac, Abraham's gone. Abraham never saw the promise fulfilled to his son, but he died believing in the promise. His last act on his deathbed to provide a wife for his son that he would never see come to pass in this life. So she took her veil and covered herself like a bride. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. She took over Sarah's tent again. Doesn't seem like Abraham's alive if Rebecca's taking over the matriarchal position. She's in Sarah's tent. 
the, the tent of the matriarch, the most prominent woman of the family. Rebecca takes them. <coughs> and she became his wife, and he loved her. And thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We saw last week the death of Sarah, and Isaac's been grieving his mother's death. And what comforts him? His wife, his bride. Now, 25. I think there's more hints about Abraham's death in 25. This is the last piece of Abraham. Chapter 25, verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Midan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephra and Hanoch and Abida and Elda'ah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Now, we read that and assume it's chronological. That's not necessarily the case. Abraham, Abraham, after Sarah's death, has 40 years of life. Okay, so we don't know. And interestingly, uh, the word for wife there is actually the word for concubine. So this is not his primary wife. This is a secondary <coughs> wife. It doesn't say when he took her. But obviously the story we followed is focused <coughs> on the promise, the line of promise. So it has to put these comments somewhere. And it puts it at the end of the story, which is that he took a wife named Keturah. And all of a sudden, the one who seemed childless, look how fruitful he is. Look at all these sons, all these children. This is the father of many nations. That's what his name means, Abraham. The father of a multitude. Right? It's more than just Isaac. He has these, this multitude of sons, but Isaac is the one of promise. Because here's what happens. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. And then would send them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So he made sure they were provided for. He took care of them. But his son of promise, the heir, was still Isaac. He was the one. So all the years of Abraham's life that he lived was 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. So then his sons Isaac and Ishmael, formerly estranged, separated, removed from one another, they come together to fulfill their family duty, right? Their familial duty to bury their father. So they buried him where? In the cave of Machpelah, next to Sarah, his wife. Right? They're there. Abraham and Sarah. In the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, facing Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. Remember Bir Lahai Roy? It's going to come back up. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. Why was Isaac in chapter 24 at Beer Lahai Roy? After the death of Abraham, he lived by Beer Lahai Roy. So my guess is that's an allusion to the fact that Abraham died in the events of chapter 24. Otherwise, why was Isaac living there? It says he didn't live there until the death of his father. 
But it makes sense. He would come up from there. That's where he was living after his father's death. But what's significant about this, this is the last of Abraham. We're done with him. His life is gone. What's significant is Abraham died believing in the promise. What's significant in the story of Genesis is that he, he was waiting for something to, to be fulfilled by God. And he only saw a partial fulfillment. But Isaac inherited the promises. And so now we follow the life of Isaac and his sons to see where the promise is going to lead. But Abraham waited in this partial fulfillment, believing that God was going to fulfill it and would, that he had in giving him a piece of the land, in giving him his son Isaac, in blessing him greatly. The promises had a partial fulfillment in Abraham's life. But the story wasn't complete. And I think it's significant because the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament actually gives us, I think, the proper eulogy for Abraham, the proper send-off, the proper goodbye. In Hebrews 11, you know, we typically call it the Hall of Faith, this, this great faith chapter. By faith, all of these things happen. I want to read it to you. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8. This is our goodbye to Abraham, who we've followed all these months, and what type of man he was. Here's what the New Testament says about him. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, things like Abraham, make it clear, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they had come, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God. How often do we think about being ashamed to be called by his name? No, Hebrews says, when you're a person of faith, God's not ashamed to be your God. 
I think he has a much better claim to being ashamed than we do. He's not ashamed to be called our God because we're seeking the city that is to come, the place that is his, a country of our own, in which evil will no longer dwell, in which we'll be reunited with saints like this man and his wife and Rebecca and Isaac and all the saints of old will see Jesus face to face the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem of the New Testament. But it's in these stories, these human stories, these human stories of death and despair and tragedy, of half-fulfilled promises of Abraham dying in the hope that his son will find a wife, not seeing the promise fulfilled. That's where we find God. In the very humanness of what we live. He is present in those moments. He's there with us. He's part of our struggles and our pains and our, our triumphs. That we do not walk it alone, but we do walk it as strangers and exiles. Not meant for this place, but for the world that is to come. The new heavens, the new earth the reformed, recreated, things that were meant to be the new Eden, if you will. When evil is cast out, the wicked are cast out outside the city, and we are in the city. with The city with no temple. Why? Because the Lord and his Lamb are there. There's no light because they are its light. There's no temple because they are its temple. We see him face to face. That's the the land promise we're still waiting for. That they waited for. And I've said this many times in this series. The land promise doesn't mean the same thing to us in our culture. Land doesn't mean the same thing to us when we have so much wealth and mobility and the ability to go from one place to the other pretty easily and we can go where we want. But we have to remember biblically the idea of land, of sacred space, space that is God's so significant, so important. And he's making a land for us that will be ours. We have to wait on that promise. But just like Abraham, we're waiting like strangers and exiles for it to be fulfilled for a city that was made by God. Not made by human hands, but made by God. So we wait together. We make our own sacred spaces. We make our own places where we meet with God in the, our homes and in our churches. And, and we do. We, do you know, we forget that that's important. Holy space. Sanctified space. Place that we meet together and love one another and build relationship. But that's significant. It's important. It's unifying. So with that said, I'm so grateful you're here tonight. Thank you for being in this sacred space with me. Thank you. I I, I love, I mean, this is my, this is the home I grew up in. So, you know, this is extra sacred space. But thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of the community because this is what we have. This is what we have to hold on to, the city of our own, until that one comes. The church. It's our sacred space. It's the space in which, in us, God dwells. Being built together like a temple. That's what the New Testament says. We are being built together as a temple in which his spirit dwells. 
both as individuals and as a community. So, I'm going to turn it over to Tyler. You can lead us in some prayer. But I just wanted to say, I love you all. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for walking through Genesis with me. I love this book. It's a significant book. And we see the beginnings of everything the rest of the Bible wants to explain in this book. The seeds all are here. of Everything that's to come. A land, a seed, a blessing. The things that have been fulfilled for us in Jesus. And by His Spirit. Go ahead.